0: Time in Rome. Elizabeth Bowen. Chapter one, The Confusion. Too much time in too little space, I thought, sitting on the edge of my bed at the end of the train journey from Paris. Never have I heard Rome so quiet before or since. I'd asked for a quiet room, and this was it. It was on the fourth floor at the back. The bed was low, the window was set high up, one half of it framing neutral sky, the other a shabby projection of the building. Colour seemed like sand to be drained away. The hour was half past four, the day Tuesday, the month February. I knew myself to be not far from the Spanish steps, which had flashed past the taxi like a postcard. These anticlimactic first minutes became eternal. My bedroom's old-fashioned double door, with key in the lock and the tab dangling, had been shut behind him by the outgoing porter, Stacked on trestles at the foot of the bed, here was my luggage for three months. Through a smaller doorway showed the tiles of a bathroom, wanly reflecting electric light. I was alone with my tired senses. The hotel, from what i had seen of it, was estimable and dignified, nothing gym crack. The corridor, dark and extremely long, had been lined with noble, old-fashioned furniture, and in here was more of it on top of me. Close to my pillows was the telephone, sharing the marble top of a commode with a lamp with the Campidolia on its shade. After my one thought, I felt unequal to any others and lay down flat. The bedhead was in a corner, so I switched on the lamp and tipped up the shade to continue my reading of a detective story. Interrupted just at the crucial point by my train's arrival at Rome Station. When I emerged from the story, darkness had fallen and I was hungry. Taking with me the walks in Rome of Augustus Hare, I left the hotel to look for dinner. In these surrounding little streets, lit up like aquariums, and tonight anonymous, saunterers passed me in vague shoals, restaurant after restaurant was empty, blue-white electricity, hatless hat stands, walls as chalky and void as the table's napery. Here and there, a waiter posed like a waxwork. Spying through glass doors or over blinds, I began to fear something had gone wrong. Actually, all that had happened was I was ahead of the Roman dinner hour. So I ended in yellow-brocaded ranieres, where they showed a polished lack of surprise among foreigners other than myself. Great gilt candelabra were on the chimney piece, and for each of us a little vase of anemones. But here I was afflicted by something else. It seemed uncouth to read while dinner was served. Stealing a glance now and then at Augustus Hare, I never succeeded in getting further than Dr Arnold's 1840 letter to his wife. Again, this date of Rome, the most solemn and interesting that my hand can write, and even now more interesting than when I saw it last. This was not my visit, first visit to Rome either. Next day, I changed my room for an outside corner one, a floor higher. This, with the freshness following on what seemed more absolute than a mere night's sleep, altered the feeling of everything like magic. I found myself up in a universe of my own. Sun-coloured tiled floor, sunny, starchy curtains. Noise, like the morning, rushed in at the open windows to be contained by the room in its gay tranquility. Roses... Bleached by seasons of light, rambled over the cretonne coverings of the two beds. The idea of Rome, yesterday so like lead, this noonday lay on me lighter than a feather. Life at this level had a society of its own. Windows across the way, their shutters clamped back, look pensively, speakingly in at mine. The quarter in which the Hotel Inglaterra stands is early 19th century, It fills the slight declivity, shallow as the hollow of a hand, between the pincio and the corso, and is bisected by the deluxe via condotti, apart from which the quarter is unassuming. It has acoustics of its own, echoes and refractions of steps and voices, now and then of the throb of a car in low gear, nosing its way among the pedestrians. Every narrow street in this network is one way, the system is dementing to motorists who do not embroil themselves in it willingly. Radio jazz, a young singer at her exercises, a sewing machine tearing along, and the frenetic song of a small cage bird hooked to a sill were my sound neighbours. From top but one-storey windows, I beheld one crinkless, continuous, tawny roofline. All the buildings fitted into this quarter – like segments of a finely solved jigsaw, are as one to height as they are in age. Their ochre, which gave off a kind of August glow onto the mild spring-winter morning. On through the chilliest time of year smoulders the afterglow of Rome's summers. And my streets, on a grid plan, sunken deep between buildings, also are all alike. Sunless down there for the greater part of the day, They stretch so far that they fade away at the ends. Small shops, workshops, bars and restaurants line them with apartments or offices above. Banal, affable, ripe to become familiar, this was the ideal room to be installed in. Everything seemed to brim with associations, if not, so far, any of my own. I began to attach myself by so much looking. Here I was, centred. I dared to hope that all else might prove as simple. It did not. One trouble is that Rome's north-south axis, the Cosa Romano, does not run due north-south. It slants, thereby throwing one's sense of direction, insofar as one has one, out of the true. The Piazza di Venezia at one end is east of the Piazza del Popolo at the other. Then there are the exaggerated S-curvings of the Tiber. At one minute the river is at one's elbow, the next lost. A stroll along the embankment is one of the least enjoyable in Rome. The dustiest, baldest, most unrewarding. To stand on a bridge is another thing. The Tiber is not intended to be followed. Only trams do so, and those in very great numbers. They grind by unceasingly, and one does well to take one. Then again, there are far more than seven hills. How's one to be clear which these seven are? This seems to be one of the primal facts which guidebooks are obstinate in withholding. Viewed from above, from the geniculum lighthouse or a terrace of the Pinchin Gardens, Rome as a whole appears absolutely flat, or if anything, sunken in the middle like a golden brown pudding or cake which has failed to rise. Down again in the city, you register gradients with aching foot muscles. This does establish that Rome is hilly. Knowledge of Rome must be physical, sweated into the system, worked up into the brain through the thinning shoe leather. Substantiality comes through touch and smell, and taste, the tastes of different dusts. When it comes to knowing, the senses are more honest than the intelligence. Nothing is more real than the first wall you lean up against, sobbing with exhaustion. Rome, no more than beheld, that is, taken in through the eyes only, could still be a masterpiece in cardboard, the eye, I suppose, being of all the organs the most easily infatuated, and then jaded, and so tricked. Seeing is pleasure, but not knowledge. In shape, the Capitoline and the Palatine are hills, unmistakably. So is the Aventine at the other side of the trough of the Circo Massimo. But Celian, Esquiline, Vermilion and Quirinal are ambiguously webbed together by ridges. On the whole, I come to suppose that these are the seven. But if so, what are the Pynchian, hill of garden, and Janiculum, bassian across the river? I asked a number of friends, but no two gave me the same answer. Some didn't care to be Pinned down, others put forward their own candidates. That I should be set on compiling a definitive list of the seven hills, eager to check on all, to locate each, was, I could see, disillusioning to people who'd hoped I might show more advanced tastes. So, given the equal unwillingness of guidebooks to disgorge anything like a list, I left Rome, when the end of my time came, no more certain as to the seven hills. Nor was it only as to those that the authorities sent me away hungry. Nothing was harder to come at than information. Practically no book I read was basic enough. Sifting through other people's many impressions, I found half grains, the merest modicum of established fact. What was I looking for? It was so elementary, so much a matter of common knowledge, that no one had considered it worth recording. What I wanted to know had so long been known that possibly it had been again forgotten. I had a continuous craving for lists and dates. Almost everything seemed to have been hazed over. I could have fancied, as children tend to do, that here was some adult conspiracy of silence. But of course my unbearable handicap was my own ignorance. Keats called his ignorance giant. Mine was monstrous. To a point, perhaps, it was occupational. For a novelist, it becomes easier, second nature, to imagine rather than to learn. Thousands of us would rather invent than study. As against that, it may be said for writers that they mistrust vagueness, a bore inaccuracy. So there could be nothing for me but finding out, which became exciting because it was laborious. The little I did find out, I'm setting down, and if my discoveries are other people's commonplaces, I can't help it. For me, they retain a momentous freshness. What is the shape of the ground underlying Rome? How would it look, I wondered, stripped of the city? By now, what are either ascending cliffs or descending torrents of buildings, masking everything? Here is a gorge, there a rock face, or a velvety green hill profile. But are these natural conformations? The heights have been worked on, levelling or terracing, tunnelling and cutting have gone on. A submerged landscape makes itself felt as man-made, calculated. Yet again, other contours are due to subsidences, collapses, layers of rubble and ruin, choking valleys or clothing themselves in soil and becoming slopes. And as against the blunted creases and hollows, there are sharp depths opened by excavation. Falls of regimes, wishes to obliterate or reinstate, have caused these bemusing differences of level. This impossibility of pinpointing any one time. Mussolini shaved away a medieval quarter to expose a forum, the Colosseum squats where was Nero's lake. Whether history in action has added to the understructure of Rome or by gnawing away at it worn it down, it's hard for an uninstructed person to know. The effect is of something pressed between two forces, ambition and destruction. In all, the convulsive hill country ringed around it, nothing seems so volcanic as Rome. The past is either an abstraction or a selected time when one gives it a capital P. It is nature, at least in mine. To make for the concrete and particular, to choose a time and reconstitute, if one can, one or other of its moments. Happenings are objective. The effect of them can never quite evaporate. In Rome, I wondered how to break down the barrier between myself and happenings outside my memory. I was looking for splinters of actuality in a shifting mass of experience other than my own. Time is one kind of space. It creates distance. My chafing geographical confusion was in a way a symptom of inner trouble. My mind couldn't be called a blank, for it tingled with avidity and anxieties. I was feeling the giddiness of unfocused vision. There came no help from reason, so I was passive. It is one way of approaching, to be passive, to be attracted in inexplicable directions, then half see why. It takes one's entire capacity to live one moment The present, the moment one is living. One is enclosed in that, there can be no other. But cannot the present serve as a reflector? To talk of entering the past is nonsense, but one can be entered by it to a degree. All happenings, whatever their place in time, must have as happenings something in common. Whatever went on goes on in one form or another. One can more than picture, one can all but take part. History is not a book, arbitrarily divided into chapters, or a drama, chopped into separate acts. It has flowed forward. Rome is a continuity, called eternal. What has accumulated in this place? Acts on everyone, day and night, like an extra climate. That was the climate I felt first. I'd come here knowing no Roman history. What I must have learned at school had been overlaid. I have no Latin. Difficulties with the map. The one I bought, the Nuovissima Pianta, had been impossible to avoid, pressed on me at every counter, by every vendor. Very newest it may have been, but not satisfactory. It's large, and I was in a constant state of needing to unfurl it in its entirety. Not canvas-backed, it's printed on brittle paper, which disintegrates almost before you touch it. Rome through February into March is windy, "'drafts if they're not gusts, gusts if they're not outright gales. "'The pianta forever was rearing up to wrap itself blindingly round my face. "'My struggles with it were acute in the early days, "'when I needed its guidance at every corner. "'Breakfast hour sessions with the pianta "'in the sunny lull of my room with windows shut "'failed to carry me through the ensuing day. "'I am unable to memorise any route.' Again and again, while I was out walking, I turned aside into cafes. Over some tiny table, the pianta could be draped like a limp cloth. In such pauses, I could at least establish where I was not, or how far from where I'd hoped to be. Rome seemed an often shaken kaleidoscope, and a would-be attraction of the piantas, is its featuring of principal monuments as drawings. Outsized facades blot out each time the street network in their vicinity so that ways of approach to them, or departure from them, cannot be traced. One's left to guesswork. For this reason, I lost my way on leaving the Pantheon my second afternoon. In a hurry to keep an appointment, better not made, I believed myself to be headed for the Corsa Romano, when, without warning, the Largo Argentina, excavated temples, trees, theatre, taxi rank and all, burst upon my horrified gaze. Nothing should have been wrong with the Argentina, Simply I had had no idea of Rome's containing anything of the sort. I could not have been more badly thrown out of gear if I'd found myself really in South America. Nor had I grasped till then that there are two corsos, the other being the Vittorio Emanuele. Simply coming to Rome cannot be half so complicated as coming back. This time I was making anything but a clean start. I was in the hold of memories as positive and as obsessive as they were faulty. I was constantly brought up short with, I could have sworn. Ingrained pictures refused to be broken up. I'd lived with them, lived on them, for how many years? Trite as they were, poor as they came to seem, held up, that is, against the reality, they'd been Rome for me. What I recollected could not be found again. It had not existed. There came points when I wondered, where was my sanity? Memory must be patchy. What is more alarming is its face-savingness. Something in one shrinks from catching it out. Unique to oneself, one's own, one's claim to identity. It implicates one's identity in its fibbing. Proust remarks, creative wrong memory is a source of art, good. But when it deceives one about a city, this trickiness is a plague and the very devil. It succeeded in tying up Rome for me into unnecessary, dismaying knots. Many of my squabbles with the Pianta arose from its contradictions of my subjective map. I never forgave the amiable Largo Argentina, however often I saw it later on. No familiarity caused it to lose its air of being an hallucination in broad daylight. Actual changes in Rome must be disconcerting. The hacking of new perspectives through old streets, the vanishing of gardens and so on, Mussolini's theatricalities, few thank him for, what seems less well known, is that Garibaldi, in rash old age, sponsored an attempt to straighten the Tiber, which meant carving away an obtruding curve of the gardens of the adorable Fannesina. One man's improvement is another man's poison. Trams, for instance, anguished at Augustus Hare, who bewails mutilation in their interest, Yet, though grievous, actual changes are less eerie than the fictitious ones. The Colosseum, I could have sworn, had shifted its position since I last saw it. I wasted a morning in an angry search for it, but humiliation, having brought me to tears, gradually eased off into humility. Among Rome's splendours is its unexpectedness, or better, unexpectability. If one cannot enjoy this, one enjoys nothing. Not that I was willing to be got the better of altogether. Partly I crept up on the city, partly attacked it, in the sense of attacking a vast problem. My object was to walk it into my head and, this time, keep it there. To encompass the whole of it was worth trying, as is so much which is impossible. Each day I reduced some hitherto nebulous area by at least a little. My approach was pedestrian twice over. Still, there could be no other. Rome made this so. Other cities gained by factitious mystery. Great portions of them seem to be made of gauze. Even for those who inhabit them, work in them, they solidify in regions and patches only. For the visitor, they're ideal for this reason. His very hurry electrifies the romance, which will by no means be over when he departs. His dreams are to be haunted for evermore by glimpse secrets, Byways left unexplored, arcades unentered, streets he never went down. Architectural mirages, phantasmagoric views from the taxi window, ensnare his fancy up to the last moment. Beyond that, London is better left to sink into dusk, Paris to dissolve into misty sunshine. Such capitals gain by subjective treatment, to which they lend themselves. Rome does not. Rome is anti-romantic. Its huge, unimaginative, unimaginable forms are by nature daylit, sharp even after dark. Here is an enmity to mystery, a blow, a succession of blows struck at it. Everything stares hard at one. The breakages of the ruins have brutal angles. Is it because of this that Rome is declared by some to have little atmosphere? Its positiveness antagonises one kind of stranger, who goes away feeling overborne. The impressions forcing themselves upon him will have been bossy, discordant, harsh. Often the short-term visitor leaves Rome gladly, nor dare one blame him. Opulent as to time, the city is scornful of any lack of it. That is the one form of poverty Rome treats badly, with the uncomprehending insolence of the wealthy. In my case, never until now had I a sum of time to spend. To the end, I never quite parted company with the pianta. Its uses, however, began to alter. Every evening, when it and I came back again to the hotel or to the Antico Cafe Greco, I engraved that day's route on it in blue pencil, scoring the wretched paper with arrows, circles, crosses and stars. My original copy of the pianta, having early writhed itself into tatters and broken into sections on the foldings, gave out completely under-pencil diggings, as in turn, as quickly did its successors. I had to replace the pianta five or six times. Each fresh copy carried fresh crops of markings. Had the thing only been more durable, I could have watched my pattern embroider itself as a whole on one. My guidebook, Nagel's, offered maps of a sort, ribbon thin strips folded in at the end, but it was a fidgety business, mating the edges, and vacuums came into being where I did not. Less baffling, section by section maps, together with plans of buildings and informative diagrams, are contained in the Touring Club Italiano's invaluable Roma e Dintorni, a volume fatter than Nagel's for a good reason and well worth any difficulties with Italian. Nobody should be without Romeo d'Antorne. I was till nearly the end of my stay. Many of my difficulties were unnecessary. If not altogether of my making, they must have arisen out of my character. If they seemed to dog me, this may have been because I hadn't got it in me to avoid them. Early troubles could have been circumvented, but that in itself would have taken trouble. And I dare say the answer was they didn't trouble me. There was a prodigality about those blunders, mistaken convictions, false starts, plunges in wrong directions. Why disown them when I can't regret them? Without them, Rome would have been less mine, and caught in the meshes of my confusion, like diamonds glittering in a twisted dragnet, were moments I would not for anything have missed. Hard to form any idea of is the size. From being so much larger than one expects, Rome seems larger than it probably is. Hills contain it no longer; it overflows, darting always like quicksilver. Its onset upon the surrounding country is haphazard, involving a rushing scene shifting in the course of which much gets left behind from the act before in places, the effect is that of a cut-out, modernissimo apartment blocks like photographs pasted on to a Victorian sepia wash-drawing of small cataracts, olives, and contadini. Fragments of balustrade, vestiges of arbours, a farmhouse, slatternly and tawny. A shepherd on a hillock among sheep, continuing to occupy vacant lots, or triangles of space between concrete roadways. And the new turns down almost as fast as it's gone up, outdone in bigness and boldness by today's, yesterday's prodigies. whether acclimatise and begin to take on a veteran air. Rome engorges whatever is added to it. There seems no end to its power to assimilate. In this whole amalgam, nothing is not Roman. This is true of the buildings caking the one-time marshes, of those stacked up hills or tottering along skylines. The patchwork gains in effect by striking contrasts. Parioli speckless on its expensive heights, looks besieged by the blotchy tenements down below. This soil must be friendly to builders, as is others to gardeners. Few foundations planted have failed to root. Humdrum, dusty, tram-clanging, middle-aged streets and squares seem as firmly embedded as the antique core. Rome's staid residential districts I did remember Rome's staid residential districts, I did remember, but not their extensiveness, or, on me, effect. Latin equivalent of the Victorian, they bespeak a sort of bilious prosperity. The stucco of the standoffish, secretive houses has darkened from ivory to buff, buff to mustard. Their surrounds are metallic, evergreen gardens, Sometimes, inside a railing, sounds the costive drip of a fountain not quite turned off. The palm trees look stuffy and unsouthern. Any windows not marked by Venetian shutters exude gloom through their hangings of clotted lace. Not only is it impossible to see in, it must be all but impossible to see out. I eyed the electric bells in their polished circles, wondering who'd ever had the nerve to press them. Few or none are signs of coming and going. Are the young always out, perhaps? The old always in? One will know nothing about these householders till information is graven onto their tombstones, which also may carry their photographs glazed on marble. Already there is something cemetery-like about the alignment, though in fact the favoured Campo Verano is very much more vivacious, alert and chatty. There, in some silent way, the silence is broken. I do know almost all continental cities show these particular rings of social growth. Simply in Rome, their monstrousness strikes one more. They demand their novelist. Also, they are among Rome's everlasting hint of a charnel underside. Already they're being gashed at along their frontiers. Knocking down goes on where a sight on a through-traffic road has soared in value. For instance, Via Normantana lets a draught of peril through an entire quarter. There spring up garages, cinemas, chromium bars, catchpenny little shops. So far, no more than a gaudy façade to backwoods of blind windows and caged gardens. Conscious of temerity as I roved and dawdled, Trying to peer through lace or contorted ironwork, I felt as never before in Rome extraneous, dubious, and alien. Other days, I sought the opposite extreme the spearhead vertical suburbs of the Campagna, lean young skyscrapers jumbled on one another like pyramids of cosmetics or tinted candy, white, lemon orange, apricot, rose, blue-pink, chalk-blue, henna, pistachio, olive, mulberry, violet. Some ape New York, others Scandinavia. Shiny with glass, honeycombed with balconies spawning flowerpots, these appear to be settings for youthful marriages, Rontier. Many of them sprout out of raw ground, tar tracked where there are not yet roadways. A representative group may be viewed from the Appian Way, across the foreground of tombs and cypresses. There are also clusterings at the northern outlets. Savagely, as they are objected to, they key in with Rome's general virtuosity, and in the distance, at sunset, they look ethereal. The same cannot be said of the huge, glum housing scheme on the way out to the 1942 exhibition. In this, each block, many floored as a prison and as mean as to windows, has the look of being solid all through. The ensemble is coloured opaque khaki and, linked by archways and having its own shops, is evidently an effort at unit planning for families lately into the middle class. Built at a height, it frowns out over the country towards the disastrous exhibition. Across Rome, where the Via Normantana in full spate bridges the florence Ancona railway line there's been an outburst of what looks like Germanic neo medievalism The tracks are overhung for some way along by tall yet somehow whimsical buildings topped by gables that seem to expect stalks, gasworks, slaughterhouses, rubbish dumps, cattle markets, an abandoned shooting gallery, a defunct racecourse, s- dust storms of demolition, skeletal battles of construction, schools, asylums and hospitals squatters' villages, marble works and other relics of pleasure or signs of progress crop up according to where one goes. Each demands to be taken into the picture. Crazy or neat, no structure is out of use. If it has lapsed from one, it's found another. This I came to realise. The present-day shape of Rome has as framework the ancient roads of the Republic. Their rayings outward Account for the starfish growth of the city outside the walls, development having always followed them. Their historic names on the motorist's route map now stand for speedways numbered from one to eight. These constitute the directions, and one should master them. They are to be conceived of as darts hurled from the column in the Forum Romanum, outward to ports on the two seas, the Italian provinces. And as it came into being, the empire outside Italy. Their names are Aurelia, Cassia, Flaminia, Salario, Tibotina, Prenistina, Apia, Ostiense. And two more have place in the ancient concept Nomentana, which, headed by its makers for Nomentum in the Sabine Hills, is today a suburban thoroughfare, and Asinaria, long ago faded out. Even its destination becomes uncertain. As against that, the today popular Casilina seems to have no notable past. Aurelia runs northwest to the Mediterranean. Originally, it served to connect with Rome the then lively coastal towns of Etruria. Following, at varying distances, the seaboard, sometimes swerving inland to circumnavigate mountain gorges, Aurelia carries the motorist of today to the Italo-French border, near Ventimiglia. It was the marching and baggage route to the prospering Roman cities in Provence. Seen the other way round, it provided entrance for travellers who, before railways, took ship to Civitavecchia, then proceeded into the capital by coach. At a memorable point, the Dome of St Peter's would jolt into sudden, though long-expected view. Cassia splits off from Flaminia to the north of Rome. Cassia goes to Florence via Viterbo. Flaminia, by which one goes to Perugia, was constructed by C. Flaminius' consul in 223 BC to arrive at Arininum, Romini, on the Adriatic Salaria, the old salt carrying route, is the third route northwards. It follows the Tiber Valley upward for some way, then strikes off into the Sabine country. Tiburtina is familiar to visitors as the road to Tivoli, once Tibur, where in the Alban hills discriminating Romans had some summer villas. Plenestina, now Plenestina, took patricians to another resort where cool air was also to be enjoyed and the splendid temple mounted the hill in terraces. The today Palestrina's excavations are high and dry over the glossy motor route, one way to Naples through Fosinone. Alternative way to Naples, the more crowded, is that which begins at the Via Appia Nuova, goes by the airport, then takes eagle upward sweeps into bridge-linked hill turns, the Castelli Romani, after which it goes down again. Not till Terracina does this road touch the coast. With Appian Tica, the Appian Way, Appian Nuova has little but name in common. The two leave Rome, even, from different points, though for some miles of their way across the Campania, they run within sight of each other, parallel, in dramatic contrast. With Ostiensis, now Ostiense, we are more or less back round the clock face to Aurelia. Ostiensis' function was to link Rome with Ostia when that city port flourished at the mouth of the Tiber. That Ostia today is Ostia Antica. Its stretch of river-deserted ruins is bypassed by new Ostiense, Via del Mare, which, flanked by its keen competitor, the Electric Railway, is a virtual racing track to Lido di Roma. The passion of Romans for getting out of Rome strikes one. I wondered, is it hereditary? Most of the city's present-day population is, I learned, Roman for only a few generations back, if that. But there can be adoptive heredity, I suppose. Becoming Roman, one does as the Romans did, unawares, habits root in antiquity, and the eight great roads seem dedicated all to one purpose, exodus. Reasons for getting out are among the the constants of Roman history. Danger from personal enemies, an exposed conspiracy, civil disturbance, noxious weather, pestilence, persecution or pogrom, need to tone up in fresh air or reflect in calm, spleen, fashion, annoyance by barbarians, banishment, military or administrative duties, care of country estates, health, imminent scandal financial crisis. A whole range, back through how many centuries, between desire and compulsion. There were those who set off enjoyably in the cool morning. Under cover of night, there were those who slid out, tense, anonymous, cloaked. Slaves fled, their betters withdrew from Rome. Exits, when not dangerous, were costly. Also, the destination needed to be property of one's own, or at least of friend's. Some remote enough villa, comfortable hiding. Those who left by choice, expected, and could command a delightful altitude with a view. Shade on the scorching hillside, a nearby spring, a shrine, sometimes a temple. The take-off in state, a long fashionable prenestina or Tibetina, would involve a dashing epi- equipage with a no less impressive train of lumbering baggage wagons. Only secondarily were the major roads for family transit or pleasure travel. The eight were not only arteries, they were a nerve network connecting the brain, Rome centre, with the extremities. They were channels for action and means of government. Priorities were military, administrative, commercial. Legions on the move along the eight, haulage between Rome and the seaports sea along Aurelia and Ostiensis, salt portage along Salaria, emissaries forging north up Cassia and Flaminia, functionaries in progress, messengers posting. All this and more is to be envisaged, and the roads, as they do today, must have streamed with sheep. Metal-bound wheels on the great stone paving blocks, hoof echoes, thunderous trampling, commands, altercations, lashings, must have made a road reverberate miles off. Silence could be nowhere in the vicinity. Now, once out of Rome into the open, there is near silence. A plane circling Champino, a Vesper throttled, a country cart cart rattling home, cut sharp into the soft mechanical hum, so dispersed, so monotonous, so much part of the air that it's more to be felt than heard. Traffic glitters out across the Campania, and among the ruined shadows you stand and watch it. Rubberized, It seems to be fanned along. But the main change now is everyone can get out. No longer is exodus for the favoured only. At last, the general passion has found expression. How long overdue you see from Sundays and holidays? Family cars overflow, doors strained on their hinges, rakish cut-price taxis are as elastic. Outriders, swarms of bachelors are on vespers. But the core of the revolution is public transport. I know of no system more far-reaching than Rome's, more energetic or more capacious. Hilarious buses, electric road railways zooming into the hills in ascending spirals, small eager trains darting from stop to stop across reclaimed marshlands or to the coast. One way or another, thousands hurl themselves forth compared to this, outgoings from other cities seem just feeble dribbles. Rome on Sundays and holidays empties itself like a tipped out bucket into Frascati, Tivoli, the Castelli Romani, onto beaches in anything like summer or sheltered main musical lake shores. On a good day the sign of a good resort is that it runs out of breathing space from noon on. Sun cooks the packed-in eaters in glassed-in restaurants. High-hanging municipal terraces mill with admirers of the panorama, elbowing their ways to the parapet for a better view. For, to the interest of spotting Rome in the far distance, is added the triumph of being out of it. Is this passion infectious? It did affect me. To say no sooner was I in Rome than I wondered how to get out of it would be inexact. More I realise... I should not realise I was in Rome until I'd been out of it, then come back again. Character requires an outside view. Also, how can one comprehend what remains on top of one? Rome is full of spaces, but all are Rome. Though my original minutes of claustrophobia never repeated themselves or threatened to, I set about looking for the gates. I shrink from the feeling of being foreign, who doesn't? Mine may be a generation with an extra wish to acclimatise, to identify. Anywhere, at any time, with anyone, one may be seized by the suspicion of being alien. Ease is therefore to be found in a place which nominally is foreign. This shifts a weight. Rome is the ideal environment for a born stranger. One does not, it is true, belong, but one can imitate. Here is much to imitate. The injunction to do when in Rome as the Romans do was superfluous. What else is there to do? I copied the Romans round me, left, right and centre. Themselves, they were unaware of this. I was not. More and more was I merged into what went on, while still having little idea what it was about. Strongly I felt what was tidal in the life of the city. The ebb made me restless. The flow contented me. My first Sunday, for instance, remained a lesson, the pleasure I had expected for having the city to myself never really dawned, or was all but instantly clouded by misgiving. Left alone with me, Rome turned away its face. No born Roman likes to be left with Rome. Last mass over, the crowds disperse as though at the sound of a curfew. Those who fail to get out show discomfiture like people on the retreat from a rising flood. They clamber higher and higher to the heads of steps to topmost terraces and escarpments where they stand gazing frustratedly at the horizon. Young girls, moody, tap with the high heels of their pink, yellow or blue kid shoes as though there being nowhere but here reflected in some way upon their escorts, which it may. Those kept in Rome by poverty manage better The working classes give themselves over to not working. They yawn, take a look at Sunday, then go to ground. No more than one or two outings for large-sized families are possible in a year. Many go to bed. Sour, sunless courtyards between the tenements fill up like reservoirs with a lull of nothingness. Here or there are cat crouches or glides or a tempest of children rushes from door to door. Now and then through a window comes a groan or a creak. Sunset brings people onto the streets again, with the look in their eyes of depth swimmers resurfacing. Few courtyards do not boast a sun boasting a Vesper, and as night sets, in these come roaring home. The gates in the Wall of Rome, though much extends beyond them, are important. Almost all traffic must pass through one or another. Ancient Roman in origin, the gates have, most of them, undergone change of name, through several of them saints have walked to their martyrdom. One continues to honour its papal donor, two serve to christen the quarters in which they stand. They are Popolo, former from Flaminia, Pinciana, Pia, former Nomentana, San Lorenzo, former formerly Tibetina, Maggiore, formerly Prenestina, San Giovanni, nearby the site of the vanished Porta Azinaria. Metronia, Latina, San Sebastiano, formerly Appia, Adiantina, now no longer more than a name and a gap for traffic. San Paolo, former Ostensis. These are all south of the Tiber. Across the Tiber, gates are fewer and play less part. The three to be noticed are Portese, San Pancrazio, formerly Aurelia and Caveleggeria. Strictly, the gates are gateways. They consist of double, triple, or multiple arches. Built or re-architected at different epochs, they vary accordingly in character. The earlier are fortified by towers, the later glorified by facades. Each creates round itself its own kind of neighbourhood, but the dominant is the Aurelian Wall, which the gates no more than punctuate and diversify. Once having found the wall, I couldn't forget it, or be unaware of its continuity. It re-emerges into view, out of covering buildings, never are not dramatic. Its re-emergencies into view, out of covering buildings, never are not dramatic. Whether in view or not, it is there and shapes one's sense of the city. Once contained, in essence Rome is so still, there is concentration only within the wall. This particular psychic concentration is not a matter of architectural bulk. Extramural Rome is, as a matter of fact, not only larger in acreage than the inner city, but more heavily built up. The wall encloses much that is not urban. Grassiness, public and private gardens, tree-shaded domains that could be woods. It is outside, often, that the out-and-out urbanism begins. All the same, with unboundedness goes a sort of dilution the air seems thinner. Modernity cannot always account for this. The wall by no means is a dividing line between old and new, or older and newer. Internal Rome blazes into the 20th century. External Rome has old world, lingering patches. No, but for all that the wall seals in the Rome we recognise as eternal, so much so that surfaces, sounds and smells differ, according to whether one is inside or out. Led blindfold i swear i could still tell whether or not i had passed through one of the gates the Aurelian wall is an aid to roman geography sites or objects of which one is in search should be related when one studies the map to one or another point in its circumference there's a satisfaction in walking under it i cannot in words convey the effect of height many things must be higher in reality or varying flashes of color rose cornelian "'Substantiality is in itself a beauty. "'To brush up against the wall "'or to press one's hand against any part of its surface "'is a pleasure. "'On, on goes the ripple of angles, "'the buttresses in somnolent repetition. "'God tells. "'Stairways, arcaded sentry walks, wait, hollow, idle, endless to be explored. "'San Sebastiano gateway and a section adjoining "'are on view to sightseers, "'but I didn't ring the custodian's bell.' Elsewhere, one may scale about unofficially, unhindered. The wall south of the Tiber describes a loop, outward from the river. Its course, which zigzags hardly less than the river's, begins by the Porta del Popolo, ends just short of the Ponte d'Industria. The thing is like a many-jointed screen, here and there folded into outstanding angles. North of the Tiber, the wall resumes not opposite where it left off, but three bridges upstream. From the Porta Portese, its Greek key pattern mounts to Porta Grazia on the geniculum. Junction is made with a later papal wall, which takes in the Vatican and St Peter's. Fortification on this side ends with the Enceinte of Castel Sant'Angelo. Rome across the bridges gives the effect of being more loosely girt than the main city. To attempt to follow the wall the whole way round is ambitious. It may be. One loves it the more if one never does. A pleasant stretch of the outer flank to sample is from Porta Menthronia, along past the Latina and San Sebastiano gates to the Adiantina traffic gap. The road is tree-shaded, leisurely and suburban. There are lawns with benches between the buttresses. Inside, for the corresponding length, are Ilexi private gardens and market gardens, the latter one may enter and wander in, at risk of being chased by a fierce dog. The busy proprietors of the gardens, merely gaze, too civil to say one nay, they need not, that's done by the dogs. Here the arches of the walls in a ground-level gallery are in use as potting sheds, stacked with rakes or wired in to contain poultry. A vine trained over an arbour, lemon tree fruiting beside a cistern among cracked terracotta shards remind one that one is, after all, in Italy. Rising from among artichokes and lettuces, particularly in the watercolour light of an early evening, the wall has the primitive reddish look of a cliff. Many people, however, either don't care to realise that it exists or are unaffected by the fact it does. Others believe it to be but fragmentary. The Aurelian Wall is played down by the guidebooks, whose references to it are hurried, oblique, grudging. This may be because it's one thing too many. Also, it was a failure. Coming late into Roman history, it was a landmark on the way to decline, a step down, a symbol of shrinking power. The generation of Romans who watched it rise must have done so with a feeling of degradation, with which we behold the drilling of deep shelters, There is a flaw in civilization. from the instant it has to admit fear. Rome at its height, that of Augustus, had been an open city. The wall of less certain days had been let lapse, obsolete, unrequired. Barbarians were not an Augustan problem. Not till the later half of the 3rd century AD was an emperor, Aurelian, so unfortunate as to find himself faced with them as a menace. He set to work on the wall with a realism which made him unpopular. And the irony was, when the crisis finally came, the war was not stormed. Instead, the cunning barbarian cut the aqueducts, first and last from the point of view of defence. This great construction never succeeded. When not outwitted, it was betrayed, hastily refortified to resist what in some cases were shattering false alarms. It stood on sturdily into the 19th century, only to show itself an anachronism. The French bombarded it, breached it and swarmed through. Yet this vain strength somehow remains untarnished. The French failed, at least, to force the Flaminian Gate. This stands and long has stood at the head of the wide Via Flaminia, leading to the one ancient bridge still in use, the Pons Milvius, nowadays Pontimolle. The bridge bore the Via Flaminia over the Tiber at the start of its resolute northern course. Roman roads are said still to echo the tramp of legions, or so I was told as a child in Britain. Actually, on any great road from Rome, who would think of putting ear to the ground? Aurelia, Cassia, Flaminia, Salaria, Tiburtina, Prenestina, Apia, Ostiense do not run classically straight. Forging forward where they have nothing to meet but plains, they're deflected by rocky, defiant hills. But they still feel wire taut carried forward by what they carry along, the everlasting incitement of their purpose. Prototype roads, they wheel round in the space which encircles Rome, north into Coro valleys with sky-blue streams, south across the Campania among sheep, interrupted aqueducts, factories, shadows of clouds, West to the Etruscan Mediterranean and east through the Sabine Defiles to the Adriatic. Roads do not sing, but one has a singing sense of them. I walked out of Rome for part of the way on each, only to find myself worsted by the distances. March one might on these roads, but otherwise, no. They're now for motoring. There has opened for them a latent, unforeseen destiny. Outside Rome, do as I did. Never refuse a day in a friend's car. Speed sublimates melting repetitive advertisements, gargantuan trios of tin-red roses, black griffins rampant on yellow banners, into fluid ribbons. Also unweaving skylines, liquefying stoniness into lakes, powdering changing heights with more and more unattainable little towns like sun splashes. So the force of the roads comes at one in entirety with a rush. The Via Appiantica should not be travelled any way but on foot. The pity is paving stones are being surfaced over. And inside Rome, I repeat, to be anything but walking is estrangement. Trams, buses, tempting on a return journey, take routes which obliterate one's tracks. Greatest annihilator is a taxi. To collapse into one is to admit defeat. Each has a room of its own, made of ramps, tunnels or anonymous avenues. Taking a taxi, for a social reason as I sometimes had to, I found it better to sit with my eyes shut. To ride in one, looking out of the windows, could undo whole days of patient work.